0: Welcome to PhotoActive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElwain. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co.
1: Good morning, Jeff. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well. I've got coffee. I've got photography on the mind. I'm ready to talk about i don't know what should we talk about
0: yeah see i had an idea that we could talk about something that's extremely basic excellent but it's really interesting because i've been doing a lot of research in the past few days into this and i've discovered a whole bunch of interesting things we're going to talk about the exposure square
1: the exposure square i love that you know what um can we do rhombus today (laughs) <laughs> that would be better. An exposure rhombus, maybe? <laughs> well, see, the thing is, traditionally, this
0: is called the exposure triangle, but yes. it's not actually true to call it a triangle, as we'll discover
1: as we as Get we go on down. through the episode. Yeah. What? Since we've had a good string of excellent guests on the show, uh, I really like this idea of let's hit some basics because I swear – I think, oh, well, I know everything about the exposure triangle, and then I run into a situation where I'm like, oh, wait a minute, which which of these? And, you know, how long have I been a photographer? Long enough that this should all be second nature. And I would say it's one and a half nature, if that's even a thing. Well, I'm going to open with a controversial statement. Excellent. Those are the best kinds.
0: Exposure doesn't matter. Um, At least excuse on me? digital cameras. Exposure doesn't
1: matter much on digital cameras. Now I can see how that applies when I find myself under something because I know that I can fix it later. Okay, exactly. But to say exposure doesn't matter at all, like well, is the what, is so, the lens cap still on? Like like n- are,
0: how? <laughs> <laughs> I, it how extreme are we going to go here? I don't. I think people spend too much time worrying about exposure, and this is historical. If you look um, on Amazon or any other uh, website that sells books about photography, you'll find a number of books about exposure. And back in the day when we were shooting film, this was really important because you couldn't see the results of what you were shooting. You didn't have live view. Now, granted, we both use mirrorless, so we have live view, and all those people with DSLRs may not see this. Right. And, you know, that made me think, why do people with DSLRs chimp when they take pictures so often? Mm -hmm. Because they're looking to check their exposure rather than anything else. Right. But exposure doesn't matter that much. Okay, so let's lay out the possibilities. You can shoot JPEG, you can shoot RAW. If you're shooting JPEG and you want to get good photos in camera, then exposure is really important. And we'll link to the episode we did with Gordon Lang about his book, In Camera, who discusses this. Um, It is really important when you're doing like that. But if you're shooting with RAW, essentially, underexpose a little bit, and then you won't have any problems because you can fix it in post. Now, that might sound lazy, but the reason for this, see, this is what's really interesting about my research. I discovered a couple months ago that on digital cameras, uh, we know something called ISO, right? What does ISO stand for?
1: Right. Uh, it stands for I Shoot Outdoors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it stands for International Standards Organization. Right. Um, the ISO is well known for people who are in industry, like the ISO 9000 thing about industrial processes and all that. Right, um, right. It um, ISO in
1: the US used to be called ASA, which stands for? I have no idea because I rarely shot film. <laughs> so A Shutter American? Access – Go on. American oh, Standards Association. American Standards Association, which I was just about to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so on film, you could say that the ISO or the ASA, which when you think about it, it's kind of strange to call the film speed by an abbreviation of an international standards organization, ISO. Totally. The film speed's baked into it. On a camera, there's actually no such thing as ISO.
1: On a digital camera. On a digital camera, yes. I have heard that, and it sounds crazy because I use ISO all the time. So before we get too far, I want to get our definition straight. The exposure triangle is ISO, shutter speed, and aperture. Right. And you're saying that basically we're no longer dealing with a triangle. Now we just have a two-dimensional square?
0: Well, actually, there's a fourth element that I'll bring in later to the exposure triangle. Um, But here's why ISO doesn't matter. A camera sensor has a basic sensitivity. Yes. Okay? Think of it as film. Think of it as back in the day. If you shot film, you'd have, I don't know, Kodachrome 64 ASA or Tri-XPAN 400. A camera has a basic ISO. Interestingly, different camera manufacturers measure it differently. So... A 100 ISO on one brand is different than a 100 ISO on
1: another brand. That also explains why some cameras have, like, the lowest ISO is ISO 200 versus 120 versus 100, right? Exactly. Now, they try to keep their
0: ISO uh, ratings uh, consistent across their brand, but they're not so concerned about other brands. But – There is no such thing as ISO on a camera other than that initial sensitivity. When you change the ISO from 100 to 200, all you're doing is increasing the gain. So you're increasing the way that the camera processor amplifies the light that comes into the sensor. It's like turning up the volume on a
1: a stereo. So it's basically like giving the sensor a little more power to collect light, right? No,
0: it's collecting the same amount of light, but what you're doing is you're turning up The way that that light is displayed. So if you're playing a record very softly, you can't necessarily hear the, the symbols, right? And when you turn it up, you can hear the symbols. So when you go from ISO 200 to 400, it doubles the amount of light that it is representing. Basically, it doubles the gain. And you know, like everyone who's been doing digital photography for a long time, the higher the ISO, the more noise you get. Right. That noise is a result of the mathematical operation of increasing the gain from the camera sensor. Gotcha. So there is no ISO. It's all a myth. (laughs) Yet it's a convenient myth. Um, It would actually be better if people understood that what you're dealing with is an aperture, that's a fixed opening in the lens, Mm -hmm. a shutter speed, that's a fixed amount of time that a shutter moves, and a gain adjustment, a volume adjustment a power adjustment, if you will.
1: Okay. So this is basically, we're talking about stuff that's held over from the film days. Right. Yet another one of these terms uh, referring to lenses in 35 millimeter... equivalence. Equivalents, yeah. Um, and, and so this is basically a way to explain in, in terms that say, traditional photographers would understand making the shift to digital as if it's happening right now instead of, you know, a very long time ago. But now it's become ingrained. It's become ingrained. Well, and also I think for whatever reason, because it's ingrained, if you were to say, okay, go out and it's twilight, you need more exposure on your image, go and turn up your gain. That just sounds either counterintuitive or geeky or... Well, no.
0: What you'd be doing is amplifying the light. Gain is amplification. It's volume. Right. right. Gain is a term we use in in audio audio, to to represent volume. But we don't say volume in audio because the gain is the actual power. The volume is kind of what your perception is of it. Right. So if you were to turn up the gain or the amplification, that would be the way that the light that comes into the sensor is being amplified To make it lighter, because if you take um, a photon on a sensor, it has a certain amount of power, but if you boost it, amplify it, then it's going to look like it's
1: brighter, even though to the camera sensor, it wasn't brighter. Right. What I'm getting at is the user friendliness of it, because I think just by a practical communications term, just going out and saying, turn up the amplification on your camera, that would just be confusing as hell. Maybe if that was the term that was used from the very beginning, people would have just already internalized it like ISO. It's possible. But yeah. ISO has an analog to analog cameras. <laughs> right. Very good. Thank you. And so that just makes more sense. And, and it doesn't sound as uh, mechanically geeky. It sounds more artistically geeky, if that makes any sense.
0: It still stands for International Standards Organization, and that's about as geeky as you can get.
1: That's true, that's true. (laughs) But it's like, uh, what's a good metaphor? I don't have a good metaphor. It's like coming up with a term that doesn't belong to something else. If you said, I need you to turn up the amplification on your camera, that just sounds like I'm having to fiddle with some internal workings, whereas ISO has just basically been in the camera space like it's been defined as this one thing and so it's easy for somebody who has no idea that it stands for the international standards organization because they know oh okay i need more exposure in my image but i don't want to turn my shutter speed way down so i can turn up the iso
0: it's fair yeah i'm just saying that everyone's wrong when they think about it as <laughs> something it's fixed that's all <laughs> because back Perfect. in the film back in the film days you had your film and it had a certain ASA or ISO and it would yeah. be processed according to that speed. However, you could push or pull process film. If you pushed, let's say a roll of Tri-X to 800, you would process it as if it was an 800 ASA film, hence it would amplify the light that was recorded in the negative with more noise, very similar to the way ISO works. You could pull it by uh, processing it like it was 200, and that would darken it, and I, I never did that. I pushed, I never pulled, it would make a different kind of noise.
1: Okay, this is where I'm going to risk my photographic credibility, but I think <laughs> I think that I'm not going to be alone in this among our listeners, and, and I apologize to all you wonderful listeners who do understand this, but going back to history, I rarely ever worked with film. Yeah, and so explain to me what you mean by you pushed and pulled because right well because the I film said, just had its own its its ASA rating and that's kind of what you had so what do you mean by by push right and pull? You,
0: in the processing period you would if I'm not mistaken you would process it longer to push it and shorter to pull it
1: gotcha okay
0: so you'd cook it differently basically and so that meant that you could um, take a roll of 400 ASA Tri-X and go out at night. Um, push mm-hmm. it to 1600 to get really good low light, and send it to the processor and say, hey, I shot this at 1600, and they would process it accordingly.
1: Right. So so you go out at night. You set your camera
0: back right. then. You would set your camera to 1600 ASA because your camera had a meter in it, and it would be using these three elements, um, f-stop, Even though uh, your film speed, was,
1: was a different ASA. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. So
0: you would be exposing it as if it was,
1: and then it would be processed as if it was. I feel sort of silly because (laughs) I'm like I'm like I'm 15 years old like what is all this what is all this non-digital technology but (laughs) this has always actually been something that I've dealt with because I came up in photography entirely digitally. And so I want to make sure But that it's
0: interesting to know the history of how we thought about this. In fact, definitely. the history of how ASA and ISO represented something fixed and still do, except you're amplifying. Gotcha. Anyway, go, let's go on because there, there's, a different a lot of, there's a whole lot of other interesting stuff going on. Um, so the three things in the exposure triangle are the ISO, the aperture, and the shutter speed. Let's talk about
1: the aperture. Great. We call the aperture the f-stop. We call the aperture the bokeh maker. I think you have to get your terminology <laughs> correct. <laughs> okay, Sorry, we're a little punchy. Do you Go know ahead. how
0: an f-stop is calculated? And by the way, we were talking about terminology. What's more geeky than a term like f-stop?
1: Oh, no, f-stop is totally intuitive, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know how it's calculated? Well, it's the... No, I don't. I, I'm going to let you jump right in. I know that... I've got notes. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> As someone who has quite admittedly, shot more intuitively, I know that when you're changing your f-stop, you are doubling the amount of light you're either adding or taking away. So even though it sounds like like going from f2.8 to 5.6, that... Seems like a weird set of numbers. Like, why but, not just say But from to 2 3? But
0: to 5.6 to is not doubling.
1: It's not doubling. Okay, so... Right, 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 right. Sorry.
0: Here's how it's calculated. It is the focal length of a lens divided by the diameter of the
1: aperture. That's what I was just about to say.
0: So <laughs> in a 50-millimeter lens, you divide it by whatever the aperture is. I don't know if it's in millimeters or whatever. Mm-hmm. The f-stop, it's a geometric sequence of numbers... And they correspond to the sequence of the powers of the square root of two. See, that's you were the second thing I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so here are a series of f stops. Each time from one to the next, it lets in half as much light. So f one, we'll use that as the basic. Okay. The next f stop, half as much light is f one point four. And you're thinking, why isn't it two? If it's twice as much, but that's because it's a square root of two mathematical thing. Right. Right. F two. Is one quarter as much light as F1? F2.8 is one eighth or half of F2. F4 is half of F2.8. 5.6, you'd expect 5.6 to be half of 2.8, but it's not. It's two stops less right. than
1: 2.8. Well, and that also explains why you have these weird numbers like 2.8 and, yeah. and 5.6. And also uh, to remember that, that when we're talking about aperture, basically anything F2.8 and wider is really considered a quote unquote fast lens like it lets in a lot of light but right. uh, you know if you're a landscape photographer you're going to be shooting way up in f8 f9 <laughs> I'm throwing my my number contribution here because I do not have the technical notes I've just had to figure this out by trial and error Exactly because that's that's how I
0: well, I, I learned to shoot well, I think that what's important here is that we're talking about having and doubling. Yes. So if you're doubling your ISO from 100 to 200, you're getting twice as much light. If you're raising your F-stop, one stop, say 2 to 2.8, you're getting half as much light. So ignoring the doubling, if you were to shoot something at F2 with 100 ISO, that would be the same as shooting F2.8 with 200 ISO. You've got twice as much sensitivity on the sensor, and you've got half as much light through the aperture.
1: This is one of those things that drove me crazy when I first started learning this because I would set my camera to auto, for example, and I would basically get the same shot because it it would – try to say, oh, okay, well, we're going to set this to the widest possible aperture we can, and we're going to give you the shutter speed. And I'd be like, oh, that's not what I want. So I'd switch to manual and come up with a different combination, and it would look exactly the same. And it was so counterintuitive. But, you know, as we're discussing, you have to have these pieces in place and know how they work together.
0: Right. Um, here's a bit of trivia. Do you know what the f-stop of your eyes is? No.
1: It, <laughs> uh, uh <laughs> That I've never heard before. Um, I'm going to say, well, do you mean my my 50-year-old eyes or just eyes in general, or does it even matter?
0: I don't think the f-stop changes with age. Your Ah. acuity changes with age, so how well you can focus, how the sharpness, et cetera. But I don't think the f-stop changes.
1: I would say it is probably f0.8. I just guessed that.
0: Yeah. Um, According to, (laughs) I think this is on Wikipedia, it ranges from about 8.3 in a brightly lit place to about 2.1 in the dark. Oh. So your iris does open more in the dark. You ever look at a cat's eye in the dark, how big they are? Um, They must have like killer bokeh when they're looking at things. Um, But no, obviously we don't see like that. But uh, since as the f-stop opens in the dark, your focal plane is more reduced and you're not able to see –
1: as well in distance. That actually surprises me because so many times I can be in a dark situation and I can see better than what my camera would see. So if I shot at 2.8 and and I was looking like what I am perceiving as the scene, I can see better and then I'll take a look at what I shot and it'll be really dark unless I have you know, unless I compensate with a long shutter speed.
0: Yeah, but that's because it's the ISO of your eyes that changes as well. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just to go a little bit more on the f-stop, and most people know that, and as you said earlier, a lower aperture means it's wider open, you get a shallower depth of field, you get that background blur. Um, I already said up, the
1: word once, so, yeah, I know, so we can I. count that toward the rest of the year. <laughs> okay. So
0: if you're up at F- F11 or 16 for instance, you get long depth of field. Right. And hence a wonderful expression that I find really important in my photography. Have you ever heard about F8 and be there?
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, I um,
0: have. Weegee, who was a press photographer in New York in the 30s and 40s, he was um, – I'm actually going to talk about him a little bit later. I'm going to spill my uh, snapshot uh, a little bit early. Excellent. It's not sure that he actually said it. It's been attributed to him that someone asked what his technique was, and he said F8 and be there. What that means is set your aperture to F8. Don't worry about anything else, because the depth of field at F8 is such that if you're within a good enough range to focus on things, they'll be sharp Mm -hmm. and be there, meaning you're only going to get a, a good picture if you're there. Right. Now for him as a press photographer, it was being there at the right time. So, we've had ISO and aperture and now we come to shutter speed. Oh, shutter speed pretty easy. easy. Yeah. It is.
1: Totally easy. Don't it even opens need to and talk shuts. about it.
0: Yeah. How quick? <laughs>
1: however, 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 s- since we're digging into into film days too, you can answer another thing for me again. Hello listeners, thank you for your patience. This was a point of confusion for me because you would say that you are using X-speed film. Well, obviously, the film is not moving faster, and the shutter is the thing that is letting in the amount of light. And so when a roll of film is at a certain speed, is that just the ASA?
0: Right. That's the ASA or ISO. We talk about film speed, which is not really... Uh, an appropriate term, but I think the actual film speed term might have something to do with the shutter speed from back in the day. Early view cameras. So this is the guy around the Civil War who puts this piece of cloth over himself, looks through the camera, holds this candle-like flash up in a hand, slides open a piece of wood, hits Mm -hmm. the flash, slides it closed. So it opens and shuts. Yeah. Um, As cameras progressed, shutters changed, and in, like, early movie cameras, they were circular. um, And then they um, came—the film cameras I had were, like, ribbon shutters. So it would go from one side to the other, and it would open and then shut. It would be in two parts, open, shut, open, shut. Yeah. Today, we have electronic shutters. Do you know how those work? Electronically. Yes. (laughs) An, an electronic shutter, so picture your, um, sensor. Let's call it 4,000 by 6,000 pixels. Yeah. Electronic shutter works by. Uh, the processor reading every pixel in that shutter one at a time from the top across down, 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 down. We'll find a link to some of these weird photos of airplane propellers oh, yeah. that they get all twisted because the electronic shutter, there's a lag between the first row and the last row.
1: Full disclosure, I did know how that worked, but I just really wanted you to explain it because <laughs> you looked like you just really wanted to. At this point, I'm sort of wondering if our episode here is really just about terminology as much as anything because uh, you no, say... no, because
0: now I'm getting to the main point.
1: Well, right. But before you jump to that, because we've talked about fast film speed, we've talked about fast ISO, but you also have that term that I used earlier, a fast lens, which made no sense to me for the longest time because what you're talking about is how wide of an aperture, how much light it can collect. And so... Just this this accretion of terminology that some of it's been taken from modern computing, some of it's been taken from traditional film, I think is what makes a lot of this more confusing than it needs to be for a lot of people. So, moving from that into shutter speed, tell me more about speed in that sense. Well, remember I said that f stops, um, one f stop
0: lets in half as much light. Uh, from one f-stop to the next. Um, you double the ISO, it acts as if there's twice as much light. Um, shutter speed's the same. If you shoot at a hundredth of a second and then two hundredth of a second, well, two hundredth is half as much light. So you're constantly dealing with each of these three elements. Well, two of the elements are letting in more or less light, and one of them is amplifying the light that comes in more or less. So you've got like these three tent poles that hold things up, but three poles don't hold up a tent. You need a fourth one. Uh-huh. And that's why I said that I'm going to call it the exposure square. But first, we have to take a little. <laughs> we have to take a little walk down. Um, what would be the right term? Um, metering lane. Let's walk metering down lane. metering
1: lane. Nice. Yes. Okay.
0: So modern cameras have meters in them. In a recent episode, Sandra Cohn, who shoots on film, told us that she uses a light meter, which you point at your object or you point at your lights, and you calculate and you calculate um, according to your film speed. ASA or ISO, the shutter mm-hmm. speed and aperture, camera meters try to make your picture what is known as 18% gray. 18% gray is actually kind of 50% between white and black, but just because of the way it's measured, there's it's 18%. I didn't actually look up why they call it that. <laughs> um, and sometimes you'll be looking through your camera, again, with mirrorless cameras where you've got a live view, and you'll think well the metering i've got this totally on automatic and the metering says that this is right but it's too light or it's too dark and that's where the fourth tent pole comes in and that's your exposure value adjustment on most cameras this is measured in third of a stop mm-hmm. so uh, one full stop of exposure value is like doubling or having the iso the shutter speed or the aperture you can't tell your camera to change its metering, which is looking for 18% gray. So when you're looking through and you see it's too dark or too light, you adjust with the exposure value, the EV setting. Um, On our cameras, it's a knob on the top right, really easy to access with your thumb. Yeah. Other cameras may have them in different places, or if you use it a lot, you may set one of your dials on your camera to it, etc. So your camera is using... One element as the base, which is the ISO, says this is how much light I've got. Mm-hmm. Um, it's using the aperture and the shutter speed to adjust accordingly. The metering's aiming for a target, and you have to adjust for that target by using the EV compensation.
1: And this is also something that I found, uh, again, early on when I was just frantically turning that EV knob and nothing was happening. If you're shooting entirely with manual settings, EV doesn't apply because you are – Making those adjustments rather than asking the camera to make those adjustments.
0: Right. You've chosen manual and that overrides the EV setting. Yeah. You would use the EV setting if you're using fully automatic mode on your camera or if you're using shutter priority or aperture priority. Mm-hmm. I like to shoot an aperture priority. What that means is um, I choose the aperture. By default, my camera lenses are always at f8, and I'll adjust if I want to change things. Then the camera itself says, well, here's how much light. Um, Where can I put the shutter speed? Where can I adjust the ISO? I have auto ISO settings. And then I'll adjust the EV to tweak that. And boom, that's my
1: exposure. So when you mentioned Gordon Lang's episode, Part of what stuck in my mind about that episode, and I have to admit, it really hits me almost every time I shoot now, was his idea that we have these cameras that have this amazing technology and this amazing sensors and processors. And for the longest time, I've just shot entirely manual, partially to learn, partially because I just got in the habit of it. Yeah, but also it's what the cool kids do. I'm a real photographer because I shoot in manual. And one of the points that he made was if you're shooting manually all the time, you're just not taking advantage of all this technology that you paid for and all this amazing science that has been built up in our cameras. For that reason, that's why shooting in shutter priority or aperture priority gives you uh, an assist with that. And I think... As we get toward the end here, one of the things that I wanted to point out was, you know, yes, these are basics and these are concepts that everyone needs to know, but you need to know this so that you can deal with situations where the camera is, is not picking the right thing. So, for example, if I am shooting in a dark environment, the camera is going to want to say, oh... I know how to compensate for this. I'm going to increase the ISO, um, or maybe you have your ISO locked because you want a a small amount of noise. And so the camera will say, oh, well, then we need to let in more light. So we're going to set this shutter speed to one-fifth of a second. And you end up with a well-exposed image, but if you're hand-holding it, everything's blurry because the shutter was open for so long.
0: And also sometimes you're shooting in the dark and you want the image to look dark. You don't want it to look Exactly. Like it's just an overcast day.
1: Right, right. And so that's that's the advantage of, of really understanding you know, whether ISO is amplification or whatever. It's also the effect that you get. And either doing that manually or using your EV knob or your EV setting to let the camera help you with that can help in all sorts of situations rather than just sort of shooting blind and wondering – You know, why is my camera not doing what I want it to do?
0: Okay, so I want to come back to what I said early on. You shouldn't worry about exposure, but when in doubt, underexpose. I don't remember when it was, but there was an episode where you were talking about an old photo you had that was really underexposed, and you showed the examples of how by raising the exposure and other elements in Lightroom, you were able to make the photo look really good. Um, if you're shooting in RAW, you can do that because the amplification that your software does to the RAW file is pretty similar to what the camera does in ISO. And in some cases, the software can render it more smoothly because it's got more processor power to get rid of noise, et cetera. Right. Um, so if you're really worried, underexpose. And if you're really, really worried, bracket your exposure. Um, take a number of, of shots um, at One third or two thirds stops up, uh, EV, and one third or two thirds stops down. This way, you're covering yourself, and some cameras will let you do this automatically. But on ours, I think that only works if you're shooting JPEG only, it doesn't work with
1: RAW. There's a bracket setting that will let you shoot multiple bracketed shots, but there's also like uh, an HDR setting so that if the camera is combining those, then it's only JPEG because the camera's is right. okay. creating something. Right.
0: But you have all these options. And as you're saying, HDR, because in HDR, the rule is that you're exposing the way the camera shouldn't expose, once for the highlights and once for the shadows or maybe two or three times each mm-hmm. in order for them to mix together in software. So – If you shoot raw, don't worry. If you're shooting JPEG, then look at your shots afterwards and adjust accordingly. Um, Bracket your exposure, but don't worry about it. It's really not that important.
1: And I would say one final thing about this. Knowing all of this also means you can break those rules because you can be in a situation, as, as you mentioned, where you want something to be dark or maybe you're shooting black and white and you really want that background blown out to white because you're looking for something stark.
0: Or you want the noise that you get at high ISO in a black and white shot because it looks grainy.
1: Exactly. And so knowing all of this ultimately gives you more creativity and not just more sort of technical ability to deal with light. Okay. Should we talk about snapshots? I would love to talk about snapshots. Let's do that. Go ahead. Well, my snapshot this week has nothing to do with what we're talking about because that's just how it is sometimes. Uh, My snapshot is a set of LED lights. As I mentioned on our last episode, I think, or maybe the one before that, uh, I wrote a series of articles about using a camera as a webcam, and there are many different ways of doing that. And part of Trying to make yourself look better on camera, whether that's for a Zoom call or uh, a podcast interview, things like that, um, is to have good light. And I've never really had good light, and so I bought this set of Dazzne D A Z Z N E desk mount LED video lights, and they're basically uh, flat panels that um, have adjustable light settings and also adjustable color settings not not color but as in warmth settings. It cost about $200, so it's definitely an investment, but it's also something that is small enough that I can put in my small space that I have in my office and be able to have the flexibility of adding light on myself or it's absolutely something you could put on a tripod as a light during a portrait session. If you want to have just some, some solid light in addition to, say, a, a strobe flash or something. So it's a DASNY desk mount, LED, video light, C-clamp, stand kit, two-pack, 15.4-inch <laughs> large, you know, Amazon, Amazon, throw everything yeah. in there.
0: Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, I mentioned earlier Ouija. Ouija was a photographer in New York City, um, particularly in the 30s and 40s. His real name was Arthur Usher Fellig. Ouija was what was called a spot photographer back in the day. um, The goal of press photographers was to try and sum up an incident in a single photo. Um, He was really good with murders and fires and traffic accidents. Um, He had a particular style that was very contrasty black and white. He used what was called a speed graphic camera um, with a bright flash. And sometimes he would even use three flashes when he needed to, um, say, light up a whole building or something. If you know that image of the press photographer from the time with the big camera and the flash bulb with the cigar in his mouth, that's Ouija. We'll link to the Wikipedia article uh, in the show notes and you'll see what he looks like. It's a fascinating story about how he went from being an unnamed freelancer to a famous photographer, getting his name credited um, on photos, which at the time was not very common. Uh, He had exhibits. He was um, recognized by major photographers. He ended up going to Hollywood. And I haven't finished the book yet, so I don't know what happens when he gets to Hollywood, but I know that he was involved with a number of movies um and it's a really fascinating story again nothing about photography as a technique um but more about the the life of a photojournalist um during this period when uh this is the beginning of Life magazine and Look magazine and they wanted lots of photos and he was one of the original photographers that helped um create that image in these magazines
1: interesting So, what's the the title
0: of the book? Flash: The Making of Ouija, the Famous Ouija W E E G E E. And there's two possible reasons for the name. At one was that he worked in a dark room and he was the squeegee guy, and they eventually called him Ouija. And the other was that he had a psychic ability to be at places where things were going to happen before they happened, like a Ouija board.
1: Gotcha. Okay, I was wondering if that actually had a connection there.
0: So that's enough for this week. If you can hear the thunder in the background, um, my power dropped off while I was in the middle of talking about this book. And I hope that my power stays on for the rest of the day. Until next time. (laughs) Until next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Photoactive Cast. That's photoactive cast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.